Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101. In this podcast, we talk about changing our mind. Because in order to be sceptical, you've got to also be able to change your mind. But changing your mind isn't just as simple as changing it for a whim. You need some kind of reason, some kind of thoughts behind it, some kind of evidence that's going to make you change your mind. What have you changed your mind about? I think it's really worthwhile to get a list together. So when you're having that off-the-cuff conversation with somebody and they're telling you that you're closed-minded, you can say A, B, C, D, E. These are the things that I've changed my mind about. That'll really stick it to them. It starts Um, anyway, Dad, thanks for coming for a coffee with me. No worries. Always uh, a pleasure. Um, and in this uh, podcast, as I've already probably talked about, we're not going to look really at fallacies, but I just thought uh, uh, just in general principles about being sceptical and about being open-minded, um, and I've already probably done this in the introduction, so I won't go over it again, but just in, in, in particular, being open-minded doesn't mean that I believe everything. No, that's actually no, been closed-minded. As I understand it, you've already talked to Ben, yep. who we both know and respect, but he would be the example of a closed-minded person. No, he? absolutely. And, and us two are the examples of the open-minded people. <laughs> Sorry about that, Ben. I had to shoot that in. No, Ben can speak for himself after this. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, and the, the main thing, with all the people who are completely open-minded, inverted commas, that I know, a lot of them are actually completely closed-minded to the possibility that they could be wrong, and they're not actually prepared to evaluate um, their likelihood of being right or wrong. So that is actually being far more closed-minded. So they'll go, oh, you don't believe in, you know, fairies or some kind of crap like that. And it's like, well, hang on, do you believe in them based on what? And are you prepared to test that belief? So that, that and, and are you prepared to learn about what qualifies as a good test or not? And generally speaking, the answer is no. Yes, I, I think, um, I mean, an earliest example that I can think of where I, I was listening to some um, uh, sort of off-the-wall kinds of beliefs about um, psychokinesis and um, uh, remote reading and that kind of stuff. And I... I I didn't know of any physical principle that could be involved, but I, I was just interested in the person showing me how they could read um, the signs on cards, for example, the back of the card and that sort of stuff. And um, what I saw happen on that occasion was the person just kept on saying, oh, you know, something was interfering with, this, with me that time, I got it wrong, you know, because I was trying to touching pick. their leg under the table. <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to pick whether it was a red card or black card or something, I forget which. But, um, and then they got one right and they said C. And so what the, I, I didn't know at that time that there was something called selective observation. Yeah. But what they were doing is discarding the um, null results and remembering the, yep. the positive results. And I, I think a lot of people... That, that's why you can't be too harsh on many occasions because some people are scammers and know they're scammers 
other people are sincerely deluded. And I think I, I sort of reserve my scathing commentary for those people who are obviously obvious scammers. Yeah, I mean they're the ones who deserve it, absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know that it, it, so. You can have a sincerely misguided belief. Yeah. Well, what I thought we'd talk about, um, in order to decide whether to change your mind or not about something, or, or to come to an opinion on something, you really need some kind of criteria or some kind of organising principles by which you operate. So a couple, and, and just some techniques. So in, on our website, we've got a section called um, Hunting Humbug, or Humbug Hunting, one way or the other, and it's got some general reasoning techniques and general principles so there's sort of a couple of them we could talk about quickly today the Occam's Razor uh, Hume's Razor and also Playing the Devil's Advocate so I just thought I'd uh, give a quick summary of those ones um, starting off with Occam's Razor so William of Occam was a kind of a philosopher um, friar and back in the 1300s or something like that I can't remember when but back in the olden days um, and he came up with the principle uh, which has since been called Occam's Razor. In saying that, I think it was around before that. But anyway, his words were entities are not to be multiplied beyond necessity, or he put it in Latin. Um, but basically, what it means is if you've got two or more equally valid but conflicting hypotheses for some kind of phenomena, you go for the one that requires the least number of steps to explain it. Um, so, you know, if you've got different explanations for something, all of which explain it equally well, that's really important. If you've got to explain it equally well, then you choose the uh, simple one over the other one, or as Dad, you talk once a long time ago kiss keep it simple stupid yes and I, I think I first saw this beautifully demonstrated by a lecturer of mine in uh, first year history and philosophy of science who said you can explain the phases of the moon by hypothesising that there are little men living on the moon who turn on um, electric light bulbs in a given sequence to give the phases of the moon yeah. but if you hold models of the moon and the sun and the earth um, you can explain phases of the moon by the movements of those planetary bodies um, and, and satellites. And, of course, uh, they're not equally valid explanations because one one explanation, a fantasy explanation, you could come up with a fantasy... Well, they, the top yeah, they both explain it equally well in terms of the observation, but then one requires far more steps to explain it than the other because you've got to have where those men come from, what how they power their electricity, blah, 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 you know, and, and that requires all these explanations that we don't have, have yeah, the, people. The, other, so, the yeah. other thing about Occam's Razor, which I like to emphasise when I'm talking about its utility, is that science itself is about prediction and... Uh, the, the value of science is being able to predict what's yep. going to happen in, uh, in most cases. If you know about the world, you can, the world becomes predictable. Um, and Occam's razor allows you to predict with fewer steps yeah, yeah. and more certainty. So even, even if it's not, you know, choosing the simplest explanation doesn't guarantee it's the right explanation. That's right, yeah. It guarantee, guarantees it's the most economical explanation and the one that you can use quickest yeah. and easiest. Well, as, as Occam said, I think that's make a perfect. His other quote, supposedly, is, it is vain to do with more what can be done with fewer. So even if you can't necessarily find any good logical reason to choose one or the other, why, if you don't need that extra step, then why bring it in? Unless it adds some kind of, something to the explanation. Um, and one good one to do with students to freak them out a bit was um, start off lessons on light, talking about dark suckers and talk about how yeah, light, lights yeah. were actually dark suckers. And I tell you what, they, it's very, when you actually get into it, it's very hard to find a 
good reason why it couldn't be that way around. Yeah. Some when you start getting into the quantum physics of it and the actual um, optics and, and refraction and diffraction of light and light as a wave and all that kind of stuff, then you can start seeing how dark suckers don't breaks down. But on its face value, why can't the sun be a giant but, dark sucker in the sky? But as 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 Ockham is said to have remarked. If, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> That's not one of his, is it? I didn't know that. I'm learning something today. Fantastic. Um, another one uh, to talk about, uh, which I think is... I don't use it in the original way that it was um, said. It was Hume's razor. Hume being the... Uh, David Hume being the Scottish philosopher. I think he was Scottish. Yeah. Uh, and he said, no, it was to do with miracles. And it was in his essay on miracles. But, but I've... Um, of miracles. But I've adapted a little bit for more modern type thing which is his one says no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless that testimony be of such the, the kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavours to establish that's his long winded way of basically saying well, and that's how they wrote back then if we're asked to believe in X in deciding whether to believe it or not, we should ask, is it more likely that X is true, or that the evidence for X is mistaken, or can be interpreted in a different or more realistic way? If it seems that it's more likely the evidence is wrong, then we don't believe in X. Put it simply, as skeptics always put it, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So the way I like to think of it is, if you've got a claim that's kind of an everyday kind of claim, you don't need that much evidence for it. Um, whereas if you've got a claim that you know, defies the laws of physics and things like that, that's when you need um, far more evidence for it. So there's, it depends on the level of a claim someone is making. So you know, if someone's making a claim about uh, UFOs, you actually don't need a lot of um, evidence to support that, but it's the quality of the evidence you need to support that. So if you've just got one clear example of a UFO, then you're going to change your mind straight away. So a UFO lands on the lawn... Uh, sorry, an alien spacecraft lands on the lawn, aliens get out, um, you know, uh, barring it's some kind of fantastically well-pulled-off hoax, an alien civilization lands down, we know it's probably going to be true. So you don't need to, the, the quality of evidence doesn't have to be that high because... There's no reason life can't have evolved somewhere and be intelligent. But well, say, fair, fair, yeah, the, sorry. Thing, the thing is that um, I, I, I was sceptical about UFOs until I saw that documentary, uh, Mars Attacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, then I re- realised about half the way through that it, it was actually a fictionalised account. But, I, but it was a fictionalised account. At that point, no, I but that was, was really that was scared. a fictionalised account of the real documentary, um, the one. Uh, um, uh, called uh, what's it called? Um, I've forgotten the name of it. It's getting out copies now. What's that Will Smith one called? Um, oh, Men in Black. No, no, no. The um, oh, going um, the big spaceships and he blows them up and yeah, uh, with the president. And yeah, it was yeah, yeah. More realistically done. Yeah, what the hell is that so called? I've forgotten. Oh, it's really annoying. Um, Independence Day. Independence oh, yeah, yeah. Day, that's right. Yeah, that documentary, Independence Day, that was a fantastic documentary. And the other documentary that I really liked on all that stuff was um, uh, um, Starship Troopers. Another fantastic... That was a documentary from the future. I don't well, know how they got to back. be honest, until I saw Sharp, Starship Troopers, I thought we were goners. Yeah. You know, I saw Mars Attacks. Yeah. And I thought the business of singing a Frank Ifield song and blowing yeah. their heads up was very unlikely yeah. to work. <laughs> Uh, when I saw Starship Troopers, they were just oh, such mean yeah, sons yeah, of bitches, yeah, right? They were, yeah. But so the, the, old, the converse of that is, say, ghosts. Now, ghosts, 
in some ways might seem more plausible to people, but if you actually understand the laws of physics and all that kind of stuff, that it starts seeming pretty implausible. So, because, you know, the laws of thermodynamics, blah, 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 how does immaterial objects react with material objects, and all that kind of stuff. So then, you, then the threshold of evidence required is, is actually quite high. It needs to be quite convincing. Um, and I already talked about this with Ben, but I'll mention it now. Uh, yeah, even though I've already um, talked about it with Ben, the homeopathy, you know, you have to in- invent an entire new type of science for that to work. So that could happen, sure, but you need a lot of evidence besides just anecdote, which is essentially all they have. Well, it's, it's interesting too that something like ghosts, which are living in a material world that we live in, um, I, I agree with your interpretation entirely. But I can still remember living in the Seychelles and there was a lot of... Um, there was something called Grigri, which was a bit like... Oh, yeah, I think you mentioned that in the bit, last podcast. A bit like yeah, Voodoo. Yeah, yeah. And um, we had a, a visitor staying with us from uh, Mauritius, who was Mauritian, and she was a believer, being brought up since childhood and this sort of stuff. And her terror, mm. uh, walking her back to the hotel in the dark, um, uh, I think about four Europeans had to walk at stations around her all the way back just to get her to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, but it was pretty fun when Lachlan and I snuck out and we walked like we were stoned and with our arms out in front of us going, oh, brain. <laughs> I mean, that was um, a bit cool. that was just too easy. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the milieu often, you know, you, you if you live in a, a, a society that's characterised by ancestral ghosts and, yeah. and you've got images all around you and you've got, you keep skulls and mementos and all that sort of thing and you take them out for a holiday once a year yeah. where they dance with the rest of the tribe and that kind of stuff. What, what it becomes is just part of what what is normal everyday and what's life, natural. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the things I think I talked about in another podcast. It was in the book um, uh, Why We Know What Isn't So, which is a great book. And yeah. as he talked about when we talk about people being irrational, generally it's um, generally speaking, it's not a good idea. It's not fair. What we should be talking about is people have flawed rationality in them. Mm. So they are completely rea- um, rational in. Um, in terms of their own belief system and whatnot, and so you wouldn't expect them to do anything like that. But, but certainly in, in terms of um, uh, deciding upon the level of evidence to change your mind about a belief, you should think about well, how does that fit within your own uh, contextual framework, mm. your own conceptual framework? And so certainly things like homeopathy, um, things like ghosts. Uh, they have a pretty high threshold of evidence they would need to meet mm. in order for me to change my mind about them. But I, but I know what that criteria is. For example, you know, double-blind, um, properly placebo-controlled trials on homeopathy uh, might do the job. Preferably one where where, people, where the people administering it aren't snickering at the patients behind their back. I love that bit from the onion. <laughs> it's just perfect. I, I, I aspire to be onion-like yeah, in well, my humans. Yeah, it'll take you a while. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that, that's pretty much Hume's raise in the modern sense is, you know, you, you, different claims have different thresholds of evidence uh, and, and that's where we, um, you know, make the distinction there. So the last technique I want to talk about uh, is um, playing the devil's advocate. And the devil's advocate, uh, it basically... 
it's where you take the contrary and opposite position for somebody in a debate um, and you do it deliberately even if you don't believe that position and in a way that you do that to try and shore up your own argument as much as possible. So you're really thinking about what are the objections people are going to offer against you in the first place in, in order to progress your, your um, thinking. It comes from um, Catholicism where I think when someone's going to be a saint uh, or, or be canonised, they, some people have to dig up all the dirt on them. So the modern political equivalent, I suppose, is the people who try and dig up dirt on the opposition or, or on your own leader and your own party before they go to become leader so you can see beforehand what are the things you're going to have to deal with. Um, but it's a, it's, it can be fun to do as well, but it can be pretty annoying and, and get, get your punch in the yes, face. I, I, I remember at my debating teacher in high school uh, introducing his technique, Devil's Advocate, specifically to his debating groups because um, it, it, in effect when you debate, it, you randomly assign a positive or negative view of a topic. You'll randomly assign a, a topic, one side of a topic or the other, which you may or may not believe. And the devil's advocate is a wonderful way of developing skills um, in anticipating the arguments of your opponents, and, but also putting an argument together about something you don't necessarily believe in. Yeah, and, no. and uh, you know, that can often refine your own beliefs, as well as even perhaps uh, lead you to change your beliefs. Yeah, that's you, right. Well, that's and that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I think the um, the the best example I can I can think of, but um, is of course from Monty Python. And let's have a listen to that now. You did not. Oh, I'm sorry, is this a five-minute argument or the full half hour? Oh, oh, just the five-minute one. Fine. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. Now, let's get one thing quite clear. <laughs> I most definitely told you. You did not. Yes, I did. You did not. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. No, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It is. <laughs> you just contradicted me. No, I didn't. Oh, you did. No, 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 no. You did just no, then. No, no, nonsense. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. You came here for an argument. Well, an argument's not the same as contradiction. Can be. No, it can't. An argument's a collective series of statements to establish a definite proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. But it isn't just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> Arguments are an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of anything the other person says. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, look. I... Thank you. <laughs> what? That's it. Good morning. But I was just getting interested. Sorry, the five minutes is up. That was never five minutes just now. I'm afraid it was. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not allowed to argue anymore. What? If you want me to go on arguing, I'll have to pay for another five minutes. But that was never five minutes just now. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I'm very sorry, but I told you I'm not allowed to argue unless you pay. Oh, all right. There you are. Thank you. Well? Well, what? 
That was never five minutes just now. I told you I'm not allowed to argue. I just paid. I just paid. No, you didn't. I did! I did! I did! <laughs> no, no, I don't want to argue about that. Well, I'm very sorry, but you didn't pay. Aha! Well, if I didn't pay, why are you arguing? Got you. There you have it. Is that? If you're arguing, I must have paid. Not necessarily. I could be arguing in my spare time. <laughs> I've had enough of this. No, you haven't. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote in the notes for this, uh, being annoy- an annoying contrarian just for the sake of it. So does that remind me of anyone? Hmm. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, what I thought we'd... Uh, move on to now uh, is my and Ben's discussion about things we've changed our mind about so I will go to that clip now and then we'll come back to that and me again Benno, how are you? Good mate, thanks for inviting me along again. Yep. Um, what I'd like to, uh, I'll probably kick it off. Um, now, one of the things uh, that, you know, we as sceptics get called all about all the time is that we're closed-minded and we... And, and you, you, can, you can tell you're open-minded if you change your mind on stuff and... I've always thought to myself, and I said this in an interview on the Skeptic saying with Richard Saunders, I don't know if you had, had a chance to listen to that or not yet. You should have, because I was interviewed. I'm, I'm a mega, star, mega Skeptic star now. Um, and shout out to you, Richard, how are you? And, and I pointed out that, you know, I was going to do this podcast on working out, well, writing, coming up with a list of things I've changed my mind about. So it's just bang, ready to go, response, when people call me closed minded. So I haven't spent a lot of time doing this, I've just got a couple of things, some of them pretty significant I think too, significant examples of, of changing my mind. One of the ones uh, that I think is really significant is I wrote my honours thesis um, kind of in history and philosophy of science and I did it on memes, um, so those of you who don't know about memes, Richard Dawkins started the idea but essentially it's a unit of culture or an idea. Um, and you know when I was writing it I gave the idea of memes a fair go and and in, in order to look at altruism and, and uh, try to understand human examples of altruism using memes. But anyway, needless to say, when I was doing it all and before that I was pretty you know, into it and I thought, yeah, this is a pretty good idea, it could revolutionise social science, that kind of thing. But as time's gone on and the more I've thought about it and the, and the less progress it's made, I've changed my mind. And now pretty much I think it's... Um, you know, dead in, an idea that's pretty much dead in the water. I've heard a couple of people talk about it recently, but, you know, they're still talking about it the exact same way they talked about it 10 years ago. And so if, if, you, if you haven't made progress in the area in 10 years, until we get, you know... Um, Anything in the future. Yeah, well, exactly. Until we get... Oh, and I'll change my mind again, but until we, you get clear examples of, um, of memes being an actual way you can do science instead of just yeah. an analogy to help you think about the world, then I can't really see it making much progress or being of much use. Um, besides being just an interesting idea. Do you thought about me? You've yeah, yeah. I, I suppose. I I think it's a it's a useful analogy, but until it makes some kind of predictive... Yeah, testable uh, prediction. Testable yeah. predictions, it's not really scientific. It's pre-scientific. Yeah. Or, well, it's proto-scientific uh, way of looking at things. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I always thought it was a proto-science, but I I thought it would eventually be quite useful, but 
I mean, maybe people are in mathematical modelling of ideas, but I still don't really see how. It's a good, it's a good example. Like, oh, sorry, I was just going to say it here. It's just a good example of the Darwinian fallacy, mm. or the naturalistic fallacy. Yeah, like yeah. The, or the, the regret, the um, post-fiction fallacy yeah. too. Like after the fact, you explain yeah. how it happened. Yeah, and well, and a good example is. People try and deliberately all the time try and come up with um, uh, a key word or a catchphrase to try and get it to catch on in the cultural landscape, and you can never predict beforehand which one's going to do it. Actually, Twitter might be a way to uh, study it because with Twitter you um, you can you know put hashtags on things, and then you can see how much they if they're a trending topic on Twitter. So when Michael Jackson died, you know it was like 15% of all the tweets were about Michael Jackson, and so I know that. um, uh, recently, uh, people have tried to get things in Twitter, but but again, unless you've got like a million people following you, like your Ashton Kutcher or something like yeah. that, or Oprah, how are you going to get it to hit the landscape? But another good example, Microsoft have just you know rebranded their search engine to Bing instead of um, Microsoft Live, or whatever it was called, Live Search. And you can that I mean just the name. It's so obvious they've had a bunch of people with focus groups sit down and decide what's the way we can get into the vernacular. Like Google is now a verb. And so how can we do the same for a Microsoft search? Oh, you can Bing it. So instead of Googling it, people say, oh, Bing it, Bing it. Yeah, so I think they might have missed the boat, though. Well, that's what they're yeah. trying to... You can tell that's what they're trying yeah. to do. But, you know, in hindsight, no one would... You'd never have predicted Google would have been a word that becomes that, but it has, you know. And so so, so if you could do that kind of thing with memes very well, then... Because, you know, essentially Google is now a meme, the word to Google something. Um, but... <laughs> So given the, the lack of predictive power, yeah. until we can come up with um, some of Thank you. Might let you give me a dunking <laughs> yeah. 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 deal with that. Ben Spen's got a very nice little pumpkin soup store at the American Bookstore again where we met last time. Um, last time we were on the podcast, I think. Yeah, and, and so that, that to me is a real an idea that is pretty much dead in the water and hasn't gone, gone anywhere. Um, oh, I'll be happy to change my mind because I think it's such a cool idea, but I can't really see yeah. it anywhere. Yeah, no, let me know my opinion as well. It's a, it's a useful way to think about things, but uh, particularly in the area of science, you've got to be careful about taking something beyond yeah. uh, just what's a interesting way of thinking about something as an analogy and then trying to transpose that onto something some other area of knowledge is just completely unrelated mm. and assume that the same laws and behaviours of a system are instantly yeah. transposed. Well, yeah, and look, it might be, and then, that might be true, but there's no evidence measure, that it is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's the issue. Well, people can't even agree on what a meme actually is. That's yet, right, so. exactly, and we're still arguing about that and that in itself, again, proves the point of how useless an idea is at the moment. Um, yeah. Alright, so your turn. Give us, give us one, Benno. Uh, I suppose, um, from my perspective, being an environmental scientist, I was always and uh, brought up in a sort of a, in a green environment, as I was by my parents. You might be hippies. Yeah, your parents. Hippies. Um, something I was always uh, opposed to was nuclear power, and I suppose over the years. As I've, I've changed my, I, I used to be flat, flat out dead against nuclear power, and I realised as back I in the day, Suzuki yeah, in days, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I suppose as I've grown older and I had this opportunity to think about things more deeply, um, I've realised that uh, holding an absolute position on anything, which is pretty much 
is applicable to just about everything that I think I've thought of to change my mind. Holding an absolute position on anything is kind of a, a foolish way to be. And so in this particular instance, as soon as you think about the, the risks and benefits... Yeah, I, I was going to interrupt you there, except from the Dutch. I hate the Dutch. <laughs> I've got nothing against so, the Dutch. That was a rip-off from Austin Powers. Oh, okay. I steal all my jokes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so yeah, as far as nuclear power is concerned, I'm not automatically opposed to it now. And um, I think like most technologies, it can be used for, uh, for good or for ill. And the relative risks are, I suppose, a lot smaller than I originally thought they were. That doesn't mean that it is without, like, nothing we can do is without risk. But yeah, but I mean, also, for, yeah. to, to defend your idiocy yeah. for in the initial, when you're in your early 20s, you know, and teenagers, you know, just an idiot that didn't like nuclear power, because obviously it was cool. No, I was, I was, I was exactly the same as you, but, but the technology improved too. So when you read about yeah. the next generation reactors, and, and you know, because I teach physics, we used to teach physics, so I, you know, I had to look into this stuff a lot more, and I thought, actually, these new generation reactors, if you start going down those ones, then, you know, like some of the pebble bed ones, and things like that, yeah. then obviously the risks are much lower than they used to be, as long as they're not built in Russia yeah. or China, <laughs> which is where we were thinking about the point something, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> anyway. So I'm not, a, I'm not philosophically opposed to nuclear power on an on a ethical or moral basis anymore. Um, and I still think there's, um, there's good economic reasons for not heading down that path, but they're, they're not so much... Uh, my, my objections aren't so much based on a moral position anymore, they're based on a practical position. And uh, I think nuclear power is probably going to only be useful as a transitional power source yeah. as we uh, head into a, a, a fossil-free... Uh, fossil fuel free. Fossil fuel free. <laughs> yeah. It's a no, no, no burning fossils. <laughs> a fossil fuel free uh, energy future. Yeah, and that's a good example, I think, too. Yeah, I, and I, I'm the same with that kind of technology. Um, a lot of environmental things, you know, like I said, genetic engineering, you know, I was pretty much initially, uh, back in my day, Suzuki reading days, um, against such things. But now, the more stuff I've read, and I've been to talks, you know, from real geneticists, and, and my only issues there tend to be more with the... Um, have some control of the technology by multinationals, but even then, I'm still open-minded because I think, well, well see, that, that's something coal is a nice multinational. They produce a great product. <laughs> Actually, no, I did not enjoy Coke. I never drink the stuff. I <laughs> oh, see that that's something else that I've um, changed my mind. I'm no longer suspicious of the profit motive. Yeah, yeah. and I don't think trying to make a profit is necessarily bad in itself. Uh, I think again, this generally, I suppose I'd call it my maturity. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, again, I'm not taking an absolute position anymore. It's like, I think that's just the, everything in life is grey, yeah. really. I mean, no, not the Dutch. Again. Yeah, 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 apart from the, the Dutch. Dutch. No. <laughs> just kidding, any of you about Danish listeners, Dutchish listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that completely. Um, the one other one I was going to talk about, uh, which is significant to. Um, uh, my area is um, edu- education is uh, coming up to a grade with student work using um, criteria sheets instead of just using straight out marks um, and excuse that background noise there Ben eating his delicious pumpkin soup um, it looks bloody good I've got to say um, and 
So initially, you know, as a teacher of maths and science and physics in particular, you'd write exams and assignments and so on, and you'd give a kid a mark out of, you know, 20 or 30 or whatever you were doing it with. Um, and then where I work now in Queensland, we use criteria whereby you actually have a particular thing you're looking at, a quality in the student work, and you assess their work against the quality on an A to E scale. And, and you actually have a description of what the quality looks like at an E level, at a D level, at a C level, and so on. And then you match the student work against that criteria as evidence. And initially I just thought, well, it's, it's, it's you know, maths, you can just do marks. But I realised... You know, after looking at it properly and reading about it um, and doing it, was that with marks, you can give a test out of 100, but it doesn't tell you anything about how difficult the test was. Now, a good test will take students through from relatively simple stuff to more difficult stuff, but it doesn't need to tell you about what you're assessing. So if you write a test at a fairly low level, a student can get 100 out of 100 and look like they'd nailed it and they were really good at that subject, but not necessarily. And so if you write... Uh, uh, quali- descriptions of the quality you're looking for in a particular piece of work, then the student, so for example, you could you'd write a description about how complex and how um, challenging a question was and about uh, how they link and apply algorithms to solve a problem in math. So you can talk about linking and applying algorithms in, in a multi-step problem. So that immediately tells you they're solving these multi-step problems and so it's a quality, whereas with marks it'll just tell you what they got. Um, out of 100 or whatever. And so, and then of course I found out later on it's actually quicker and the feedback to students actually understand why they get things wrong and what areas they're weak on because the, it actually describes the quality to them. So then you can't have a nice convenient list of who the best student is? Well you can, but it's uh, it's harder to do. Yeah, you still can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can still rank them. <laughs> well, what about ranking schools? Yeah, well that's, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's the biggest problem. For example, you know, in, 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 in systems that use standardised testing and so on, all they're actually testing is how good kids are at tests. That's it. Um, and then by ranking, they're, they're, all they're doing is they show improvement over time. Like the UK showed improvement over time. And all they were showing was improvement at the kids are doing tests and improvement at schools at manipulating tests and students to not do the tests. But when they're assessed on any objective measure against other countries, they didn't show any improvement. You know, they actually went backwards in some areas. So, yeah, that's certainly one area I've definitely changed my mind on. That's a big change to make as a maths uh, science person, not using marks anymore. Actually, yeah, I should have I should have probably mentioned this one at the start. You know, it's like um, basically my perspective on on ethics and morality has changed over time. Yeah, I used to be very much what I, what you'd call a, a virtue. My own personal sort of ethics were very much virtue based. Yeah, and. I'm assuming most of your listeners know what virtue-based is. Yeah, you can assume. Basic, if, if, if you don't know what virtue listen to, virtue-based means, stop listening to this podcast. You're an idiot. <laughs> no, I mean, go on to Wikipedia and look it up. Yeah. And um, I suppose I've, I've shifted more to a consequentialist. That applies to consequentialism and virtue, virtue-based ethics, all right? If you don't know what it is, you're embarrassing to me. I don't want your ill listening to my podcast. You scum. Sorry, I, mean, I love you all. Write me a good review on iTunes. has been a while. <laughs> so and I, I suppose that is sort of uh, reflected in just about everything. Uh, can I say I, I've shifted to a consequentialist-based position? Ben has this issue yeah. with short time, yeah. short-term memory. Yeah. He's very good-looking, but... <laughs> Well, that's what my mum tells me. Yeah, yeah. And she says you're really cool as well. <laughs> Your mum would know. She's hot. No, sorry. Uh, that's wrong for you. Yeah. What was I talking about? I don't know. Con- uh, consequential. Oh, yeah, consequential. So I suppose that's 
it's sort of reflected in uh, things that I've changed my mind. It's like a, basically a shift away from holding absolute positions on things to being more receptive to what the actual outcomes of things are. Yeah, so, so you know, virtue-based ethics yeah. is like the Kantian type stuff with yeah. the, the rules, there's a rule, but your rules are based on yeah. um, on more on someone's uh, intentions, I suppose, would that be a part of it? Or, or no, you've just got a duty, a duty-based you, you, It's like you, compassion, I mean, compassion is a virtue. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. And so you should always be compassionate, but because com- being compassionate is good, and so you define yeah. what yeah, is yeah, good yeah, by what yeah. is virtuous. Whereas uh, consequentialism would say, well, compassion is good, but there's probably times when being compassionate is not the best thing to be doing. Yeah. So if you look at the consequences of behaving like that... Yeah, exactly, that's right. Yeah, oh, I agree completely, because at the end of the day, what I mean, what matters to people and how the effects on their life yeah. and their consequences. But I, I've, I've also gone that way too, a lot of my reading and study, but I probably didn't have a... I intrinsically would have had a virtue-based ethic, I suppose, but I wouldn't have had thought about it. But, um, but the other thing I think consequences and tends to miss or a lot of the ones you talk about is also I still think you should value intention so mm. even though um, and also you should talk about the position someone is like you talk you talk about um, when you judge someone's actions being moral or not I always yeah. think well, were they in a position to know what they were doing or, and that doesn't mean did they know yeah. that means should have they known yeah, ignorance and, is not yeah that's right yeah well it might be it depends whether yeah. they should have known or not well that's um, another option yeah and so a quick example like Einstein was not in a position to know when he came up with EMC equals MC squared that it would have led to nuclear weapons but then guys like Oppenheimer and that yeah well they were in a position to know so they, they have moral responsibility towards it but then also were there, were there intentions um, were there intentions for that consequence I think needs to be taken into account too because a lot of times the consequences and people don't take that into account but for example like if, to me it's worse if I get hit by a car by someone who's deliberately running me down versus someone who's at, you know dropped their glasses and stupidly tried to pick them up which is worse the guy trying to run me down deliberately is worse because they have worse intentions even though overall the consequences the are consequences different. are the same yeah, yeah so there's, there's some little distinctions I like to make too but I think that's a as a rule of thumb mm-hmm. you can always find I've never found a moral system that it doesn't break down there's somewhere there's always an exception yeah but as a rule of thumb a day to day thing it, it obviously works really well and, and I think that's actually what most yeah. people do ensure the yeah. is consequentialism you know because people say and it's a virtue a... yeah but it's like yeah. it's a virtue not to lie but everybody yeah. tells white lies because of the consequences sometimes during the day so yeah I've definitely moved over that way as well but but yeah I do have a lot of empathy for things like um, but you see you can, you can include stuff like um, being compassionate because on in general being a consequence is a good, it has a good, good consequence be, yeah. well, in general being compassionate will have good consequences for most people you know, in most situations so, yeah. so you can still get those things in there yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what else have I changed my mind um that's it for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm done. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, it is hard to change your mind and stuff when you're generally right all the time. Um, I know, Theo. Yeah. I don't know. How do you manage yeah. it? I might, I'd have a mental breakdown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's it. That's that's the problem. People do have um, mental breakdowns. So to avoid cognitive dissonance, they just yeah. keep telling themselves the same truth no matter what it is. And look, everyone 
everyone can fall for that problem, but yeah. you know, it depends how you deal with it. I suppose that's why I, like, I always like what uh, Richard Feynman used to say: yeah. is that you're the easiest, the easiest person to fool is yourself. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, but that's why I think being married. I've said this before on the podcast: being married to the method, not to the answer, yeah. kind of immunises you from that a fair bit because we still have, you know, like for example, if someone does a, uh, a, a ridiculous study that demonstrates conclusively that homeopathy works, I'll, it will take a long time to convince me of that. I'll take a long time. Claims. Yeah, that's yeah. right, because the, it's so implausible. Whereas other things, I'm, I'm more happy to believe. So I just read a thing recently about, um, was it turmeric or, or some spice that's really good for pain relief? I can't remember which one it was. And that, it might have been cumin or turmeric, something like that. Um, and, you know, that I've still sceptical of but I'm, that one's far more plausible to me uh, even, but, unfortunately, but there's a potential physical that's mechanism that's right yeah yeah and so I'm prepared to change my mind there's a lower threshold of evidence required for something yeah. like that so it depends what you know so some of the things you change your mind on the threshold of evidence is really important so if you truly understand the claims of say things like um yeah, homeopathy, and you understand the physics, the implausibility of the physics behind it, then the the um, the criteria to change my mind is a lot higher yeah. than it would be for something else. Um, and so that well, that's that whole whole it. issue of inventing a new kind of science, isn't exactly. it? To explain it, if there is an effect. Yeah, and, and then and another point I've heard someone say about homeopathy before was, why bother inventing new types of science when you haven't actually demonstrated it works in any way? Like, you don't bother yeah. coming up with mechanisms for stuff until you know there's a real effect out yeah. there. So, you know, so... I mean, you can. You come up with a the There is that, man. Water's got a memory. That's right, it does, yeah. yeah. It just it has a selective memory. <laughs> it doesn't remember going through my bladder, but it does remember being shaken a bunch of times. Yeah. All right, anyway, I think that's a, a pretty good uh, list of some of the things we've changed our minds about. We've got more on our list, yeah. but we don't want to bore you with it anymore. There There's some yeah. of the bigger ones we've changed yeah. our minds about. There's plenty of little things too, like there's this person at work that I initially used to think was a complete head, um, but now I've changed my mind. I quite like them. I won't name names, obviously. Um, everybody else at work I used to like, but now they're a bunch of... <laughs> just no, I know when it works, as I know this is my podcast, so I should be all right. Yeah. I, I, a quick example, when I first met Ben, ben in year eight, when we were in high school, together. Um, he was sitting on the steps reading a comic book and I thought, what a complete utter nerd. What a geek. And you know, as times moved on, actually I haven't changed my opinion on that one. But it was alright, I took one to new one thing as I was yeah. reading the Spider-Man comic book and I believe you were reading The Punisher. That's right. Yeah. The Punisher is superior to Yeah, well you introduced me to the violence of The Punisher and I was quite impressed with that. My, my innocent little mind was opened to Uzi's. Alright, that's enough okay. for reflecting. Yeah. Alright, Benno, thanks okay. for Thanks for having Again, right, better eat your pumpkin soup. Um, okay, so Dad, Ben and I have just had our discussion about some of the things we've changed our mind about, mm-hmm. uh, and now I believe it's your turn. So any of the, you want to bring up a couple of things you've changed your mind about over time? Well, I, I, I know I thought about these things be, before this podcast, but one, as I was driving here, I was thinking about one major one, and I can actually trace the process of changing my mind. Um, I, I had a view about nuclear disarmament and uh, uranium mining and all of those sorts of issues many, many years ago, and I used to go in Hiroshima Day marches and like, yeah, we're back in your filthy hippie. Express my solidarity with that whole point of view, and um, you actually went in those marches too, but you were in a little pazoo on my hi- back, filthy hippie child. Yeah, and 
I in the first couple of ones I went into, I just thought, well, it was a good thing. I, you know, it, it, it was a, a, an issue that to me seemed pretty straightforward. That um, you're expressing a view which might, in a minuscule way, change the views of people in power and so on. And then I, I gradually became aware of the people around me, and I, I remember about the third march I was in. Um, the uh, television cameras were there, of course, and reporters, and the reporters were drawn to the freaks mm. in, in the march. So uh, uh, there was a CSIRO physicist who was my friend uh, from the Blue Mountains, also went in the marches, and he said, dress conservatively because, you know, that, that actually makes you know makes uh, makes it not look like freaks or fringe dwellers and that kind of thing but the the cameras always went for the freaks and so people with bubble on their hats and carrying a pyramid over their head to stop the radiation and, and the like were the ones who were inevitably interviewed by the media and so you'd see the reports on television that night and the impression you would get is is of sort of mindless people having fun, prancing on the street. Nothing's changed much um, then. <laughs> shouting out slogans. And I thought, well, well, what is that actually achieving? What's what's happening here? And why am I finding myself in the middle of so many freaks? And I sort of gradually formed the view that... Um, That's how I feel at work every day, by the way, just quietly. It's a real indicator to me of whether you're on the right track the kinds of people that are attracted by that particular thing. So the slogan here is the people who bought uh, bumper stickers and so on. Some were sincere, but a lot of them were just freaks who were out to have fun. And a lot of them are also attempting to provoke trouble with the police and, and those sorts of things. So I sort of moved away from that public commitment and I read about these issues... Um, then we had uh, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, and I thought I was confirming my beliefs that nuclear energy wasn't the way to go. And then we've had the um, the carbon uh, carbon dioxide greenhouse gas problems that have been alluded to. And then you need thought, talking about base load power, and you think, well, maybe they've got better. So I, I've actually reached a stage where there's so many conflicts in that whole area. Of greenhouse gases, of uranium uh, mining, of uh, nuclear reactors, that I, I feel I'm going to have to read a lot to make up my own mind because the people advocating one side or the other uh, can be very flaky, yeah. uh, can be very wrong, and I, I would like to sober read, read sort of a couple of sober books, well-researched books, written by advocates of one side and the other side in order to come to a clearer understanding. Now, I hate having to do this. Yeah, it's a lot of effort. But I, I may change my mind on this issue as a result of going through that process. So I'm open-minded, but I'm suspicious and sceptical because the kinds of people that align themselves with one side of the issue. Yeah, I, I actually do have a real... That's a, that's going to be a real effect, actually. To, like, the, the person who's advocating it can be a real problem for me because just that person, I want to... I dislike them, and so it's very... And also there's this bit, well, if they like it, 
got to be something wrong with that, you know. So, but no, you know, on a serious note, you know, I, I, I think that's that's a real issue, and I've definitely changed my mind on such things as I talk about with Ben, and a lot of that's just from my understanding of it, and the new technologies that's coming through is getting better and better. Oh. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly, I think that that's a, a real. Uh, good example where you know and it can take time too but as long as you can say you know as a skeptic you're always questioning so you might not you're not going to change your mind overnight or anything but you will the evidence weight of evidence starts moving in another direction one thing i recall which is not on my list where i did change my mind overnight and i think most people in australia did and that was i had always believed that uh, stomach ulcers were the result of stress Stress, and secretions in the stomach and that the treatment should be, you know, some kind of stress amelioration and so on. And then a couple of Australian uh, medical practitioners, quite, uh, stroke scientists, actually discovered uh, some bacteria. a bacteria, Lactobacter bacillus, and actually ingested some uh, and gave themselves stomach acid, uh, stomach uh, ulcers. And overnight, what had been a certainty in the medical community. Um, was suddenly overturned. Now, yeah. that, that, was evi- that was evidence. I, yeah. I didn't have a predisposition, predisposition in my mind that a bacterium was involved. I'd given the matter very little thought, mm. but once I saw those reports... Well, they won Nobel Prizes by, for it, yeah. And yeah. you know, they won prizes. I thought, well, you know, I've, I've utterly changed my mind on that. Now, a consequence of that is that maybe I'm more open-minded now to the possibility of pathogens mm. causing a lot of things which in the past have been blamed on the idiosyncrasies or weaknesses of the, of the person. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, uh, it's been a good thing because it's opened my mind to those possibilities. But you need to do the science to demonstrate mm. that. Yeah, I mean, a really good example of that, I remember reading the Simon Singh's book, um, Trick or Treatment, and he talked about, I think it was that book, and he talked about um, when they used to do some kind of surgery for heart conditions. I can't remember what it was. And they, they I think it was to lower blood pressure or something like that. I can't remember what, exactly what it was. And it worked to lower blood pressure, I think. But they then did double blind, and some of them didn't get it. And all the patients had their blood pressure lowered because of because of the placebo effect. So they immediately stopped doing the type of surgery because it was, even though it might have had the same effect, it's it's placebo. And so when you learn that it doesn't have an effect, you don't do a dangerous and invasive surgery. So you move on, you change your mind about it, you adapt, you move forward. And so that's when you, for example, some things like say acupuncture and things like that, where they as soon as they start tightening up the controls of the experiment, they demonstrate more and more conclusively that it's pointing towards being a placebo effect. So what do they do? They go and say stuff like, even sham acupuncture works, instead of saying, actually, no, acupuncture works on the placebo effect. So how can we then utilise that placebo effect honestly to, and see what we, good things we can do with it? So, for example, maybe you can help people with their back pain or their pain using the placebo, but honestly and not lying to them about it. So putting them in relaxing conditions giving them some kind of stimulation that helps, blah, blah, blah. That's fine, but don't lie to them about it. So, I have a, and, and that really shows that they're how closed-minded they are, that they're not prepared to look at the evidence and cop it no matter what it says. Yeah, and no, I mean, just a couple of... Uh, one example I, I did write down was, again, something I would never expect to have formed a view about, but um, I had a general view that... Um, population, overpopulation of the earth was the, the major cause of the problems we were facing uh, or likely to face in the future um, but then I'd seen some data that indicated that as societies become more developed 
they have less children and as, as the wealth grows within a, a culture, uh, they don't need to have children to look after them in old age yeah. and so on. So I had some hope from that. All right, look, uh, I think that's probably enough on the, some things we've changed our minds about. This is completely off topic, but I thought one day when I rise to the ranks in my job or whatever and become a manager, I'm going to end every meeting with an evil laugh so the rest of the floor of people can hear me. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> anyway, back to on topic. Um, I think he's a really good, he's a, a great example. We're going to end the show. A great example of what happens when you are closed-minded and you have your beliefs challenged and the beliefs you hold themselves are cherished. And you, again, I've said it before on this podcast, but when you're, and I've said it, I think, with Ben already, so apologies for saying it again now with you, Dad. But we're married to the process and not to what we, the belief yeah. itself. Yeah. And so he's a fantastic example. This is, uh, James Randi over in Australia, um, demonstrating, investigating a couple of psychics, um, and he went on the Don Lane show, which is like a midday talk show hosted by a Don Lane, who's like, who was an American. Now deceased. Pat, now deceased, yeah. And, um, he's an, he's an idiot. And anyway, he got very, very emotional and decided to browbeat James Randi and had the audience on his side and everything, but it's gone down on Australian TV as one of the biggest meltdowns on Australian TV. And and the clip is actually introduced by a well-known figure in Australian television, Bert Newton, yeah. who... Uh, one of his clips, I, I think it was on a show that he did 20 to 1, yeah. biggest um, dummy spits, yep. I think it was, and there are commentators on the, on the process itself. Yeah. Number four, who could ever forget sceptic James Randi and his appearance on The Don Lane Show? Randy was on to argue to Don and the audience that psychics were shams. People that say people are fake, she said Doris Stokes is a fake. Notice here how he first bends the key on the chair before pretending to bend it by rubbing it. The way you bent it before. Unfortunately, Randy made the mistake of questioning the powers of Yuri Geller and Don's friend Doris Stokes. And it was Don who spat the dummy. Now you didn't rub no, 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 that. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Just a minute. Let me finish what I'm going to say and then you can talk, all right? Okay, Don. There are people who will love it because they say it was a great moment in television and they thought it was terrific. And it's, well, look, we're talking about it. But really, Don probably could have done that a bit better. With me, but you come here. You're offering $5,000 no, 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 to people no. to say people are fake. You said Doris Stokes is no, a fake. No, no, you say Yuri Gill is a fake. No, you came here and you've given never, everybody a lot of lip never. service. No, 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 and no. you haven't done anything I except show said, us a lot of tricks that you I learned. You're too bad that you're not I working never I don't think he did it as a stunt. I think he probably did feel he was, you know, angry that his friend was being vilified by this sceptic. You, you come over here with this big reputation. You give us a lot of lip service about all the stuff that you're going to prove. You go against a lady like Doris Stokes who never harmed anybody in her whole life and you call her a charlotte and a fake. You know you a great said, deal about it. Yes, I do. You said that she was a liar on the no. radio. You called her a liar. No. And that woman would no, lie to I anybody. And I don't know whether she's right or wrong, I but she would lie to anybody. We're going for career. Commercial break, and you can piss off. Yes, Don, that's one way to go to a commercial break. On Sydney's 2UE. Well, just Randy, you've done it again, you naughty subversive. 
Uh, guilty. Because you're the very same James Randi who was told, quote, piss off, unquote, by, <laughs> by Don Lane on his very own television show. I mean, you've done this before yeah. in our country. Yeah. Of course, Don Lane tried to set me up, and he found out that I don't set up very easily. He uh, called me into the program. We had a meeting in the afternoon, and he said in so many words uh, that he agreed that I would not go on the program, that's television in this case, and um, duplicate all of the Gellers, because any 12-year-old kid could do that, and it didn't really mean much if you simply duplicated it. And, of course, I was ready for him, because I knew damn well when I went on that night, he would have the stuff there, and he did, the sealed envelopes and the keys and the spoons. And what really blew him out of the water was the fact that I simply did the trick because I'd prepared for it. Uh, I was ready to be deceived myself. On another level, though, he was particularly acrimonious because you uh, took to task the late and beloved Doris Stokes, who was a particular favourite. Okay, so that's, that's a good example of having a dummy spit because basically you are close-minded and you cherish that belief so much data does not enter your crank your tinfoil covered skull now just before we go uh last thing i want to mention um is just had a, a couple more people have been uh, good enough to uh make a donation to the website um so thank you very much for that as much appreciated on the donate button on paypal uh this is not to ask or beg anyone else to do it's just to acknowledge those people so thank you if you do want to uh, make a inverted commas donation um, one of the best ways you can do it is just buying a copy of the book so if you want to buy a copy of our book Humbug uh, you can buy that through the website it's 20 Australian dollars we'll post it overseas and also post it within Australia as well so feel free to you know if you want to support us a little bit buying a copy of the book is probably the best way to do it because you get the book as well and last of all, if you want to keep up to date with what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter, which I haven't bothered advertising before, but I've got a few followers now, um, and that's Theo J. Clark on Twitter, but there's a link on the website as well. The old mate here, my dad, he's not, he's not, I haven't managed to convince him to get on Twitter, but I might, I'll see, see what I can do. But I'm on the other social networking Yeah, site. you're on Facebook, you know, yeah. I was surprised to find that I have eight friends. Yeah, you got eight friends, I know, that's more, I've got, yeah. a, I got like a, I got 150 odd close personal friends. I remarked that the other day on Twitter, I said, I don't actually have any real friends on Twitter, I've only got, like, like people I've never met. Shout out to you all, all my Twitter followers. Anyway, alright, Dad, let's see ya. I realise in hindsight we actually haven't changed our mind about my channel. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I thought. I started wrecking my brain. Yeah. <laughs> but, but as I said, I already said this with Ben, I said, yeah, when you, when you start off right, it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net.